Turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, 4. I hope you're not like my wife. She said, are you still in Romans? I said, Carolyn, you've been hanging out with the children too long. We're in the book of Corinthians. Once Californians, now Corinthians. I mean, once Corinthians, now Californians. So then, he's carrying on an argument. He's refuting his critics who are elevating different party spirit. I think they're doing it to spite Paul. They don't like Paul, so they've elevated Apollos. Who's Apollos? I'd be a great preacher, but he was no apostle. He had not seen the risen Christ. But they're getting at Paul, and so he's dealing with critics. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, we only listed verses 1 through 5, but really 6 and 7 make an immediate application. Look at the application. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And I take that to be Scripture. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Um, Critics taking on Paul. Uh, He, uh, what were some of their criticisms? Well, if we went back to chapter one and followed, first of all, he wasn't up to date on philosophy. They said that... uh, in chapter 117, he just wasn't up uh, on the logic of the day. He was so preoccupied with the cross, uh, he just was not sophisticated. He was not, appeal- he was not culturally relevant. And so uh, they, they take him on for that. By his own admission, when he showed up with them, he showed up with fear and trembling and weakness, and they saw that weakness, and if anything would put off a Greek audience, it would be anybody showing any vulnerability, any human foibles, because we're, you know, we're Hercules. We're uh, the man of the Olympics. Uh, Weakness will not get you an audience, Paul. We're not impressed. We saw that weakness Uh, Of course, they didn't say anything, what kind of power was unleashed to save such pagan people. But now they're taking the servant apart. And this is the worst criticism. You can't imagine, think of this. Can you imagine leading a guy to the Lord that within three years is critical of your approach to him? The only thing that could be as bad is kids saying, 
you weren't the kind of parents I really deserve. And then you want to say, well, I'm going to go under the law and call the elders to stone you. And they will immediately say, but I'm under grace. And you say, you better be because I want to kill you. You Maybe you've never had a child despise you and say, I'd be much better had I had a better mother. Well, this is what Paul's kind of living through. They said his preaching seemed like milk for infants. And of course, they view themselves as wise and super mature. Why did you insult us with such elementary truths as the cross? Um, And then I think they must have been bugged that he claimed to be a master builder. And they would say to him, uh, you don't even have your credentials. You don't know what you're doing. Chapter 4, he's summarizing the argument against his critics and before he starts dealing with some other problems. And in chapter 4, I think you would see it in three areas. First of all, uh, his critics, and I'm going to take that 1 through 7. Then his credentials, what a real servant of God looks like as an apostle in 8 through uh, 13. And then his children, three seeds, his critics, his credentials, his children. I might be the world's worst preacher, according to you, but God let me beget you in the gospel. You came to Christ through me. This ragtag, critical man that you've uh, become of me. And so it it opens up a can of worms in the human dilemma. And I'm going to look at three things that he says about himself in verses 1 through 5. First of all, his identity, how he views himself. And he says it over and over. He keeps saying, I'm a servant, I'm a steward, and we'll look at that. Second thing is uh, his responsibility or the requirement. His requirement is not to be liked, but to be faithful, to be reliable, to be counted upon. And the issue is reliable to who? The Corinthians? Or to the Christ that commissioned him. And third thing, what tribunal he answers before. Three tribunals he mentions. Three evaluations. I'm being evaluated by you. I evaluate myself. But the one that counts is the Lord Jesus. And we want to look at that and apply it uh, to our own lives. Uh, it's, um, I have to say that this is really, he's speaking of his apostolic ministry. He's defending that. But he includes Apollos. And I'll take it by way of application. Any who serve God, any who minister to God, we're not apostles. But we who would be ministers of God by application, I want to apply this to our own hearts. And... Uh, uh, First of all, he deals with his identity. And look at his identity, how he describes himself. Uh, he says, I am a servant. And it's the, the root of this word is under rowers, someone that rowed for ships. The etymology of the word is taken from those who rowed and moved these ships through the ocean. And can you imagine? I see myself as an under rower under Christ, the word came to be used of one who willingly follows directions. It was used of free men, not slaves. 
quite interesting. I am a man who recognizes I'm under divine directions and I follow them. I don't see myself as the captain of the ship. I don't see myself as the owner of the company. I'm under the owner. I'm under the captain. And I do whatever he says. That's how I view myself. I'm under one master. And I refuse to elevate my critics to be the master of my ministry. Um, Criticism is one of the hardest things to ever live with. Uh, see, people who own the company, I'll, I'll talk to different people and say, if they don't like it, they can pack it and get out of here. And a lot of times they own the company, they cut the checks, and they control people with money and power. The last I saw, the church is a voluntary fellowship. I don't make anybody come to this church. I'm blessed when Carolyn comes with me. I can't make anybody give. And when I'm ready to retire, though I started with a dance hall, I don't get to sell the company, the building, and all of you give me the net worth of this building because, you know, I pioneered this church. I was here before any of you. Sound arrogant? I'm just telling you the history, telling you what posture I'm trying to work out my retirement. Sell the building. Give it to me. I'm the CEO of this company. No, not true. Someday, all of us guys and staff that retire will simply say, we're retiring. God bless you. The next guy picks up. We walk out with any guarantees, without any assets, without any, I own 50 shares of Valley Bible. I, I now have access to its income from now. I start all over the day I retire here. And you, in one year, or two years, they won't even know who was the guy that used to be here. I'll be history. I had a guy tell me that one time. There was a deacon. He said, Pastor, don't be too in love with your image. I can't remember the guy that pastored before our present pastor. I said, thanks. I needed that. Boom. <laughs> don't get in love with yourself. Paul said, I see myself as rowing, as one under divine instructions. Then he goes on to say, I see myself as a steward. And a household steward was usually a slave. You can look at it in Luke 16 and other places for usage. And he was a man that the owner of the house entrusted him to manage the rest of the slaves. Sometimes he would be just over the kitchen. Sometimes he'd be over a particular segment of the house. He may be over the whole house, but he didn't own the house. He was not the owner. He dispensed whatever goods the owner gave him. He could hand out the paychecks. He could dispense the food. In other words, Paul is using the language he said back in chapter 3, I'm a diagonia. I'm just a minister who waits on tables. A flunky's job. The word literally meant to stir up dust. I'm just a a dust-stirrer-upper. I I just... uh, you know, do the dishes and clean the table. You, you, can't, you can't talk in lower language and be an apostle. This is the highest office in the church. And this is the way he identifies himself. I'm just working for the boss. I don't own the house. 
I don't invent my message. I'm a steward over mysteries. And all that means is divine truths that God is now revealing. And God put a lot of them right through this apostle. He said, I just dispense truth. I don't invent the truth. I don't make it up. I'm not the truth. I dispense it to the household of faith. So I'm a truth dispenser. And I'm a subordinate who takes instructions. What about you? Who tells you what to do? Who's in charge of your life? You don't realize the challenges of being a minister to a congregation. This could be a little self-serving, but I just want to acclimate you to what Paul was dealing with. He founds this church by preaching Christ, and now we've got factions growing up. We've got men starting a party spirit, and here it's like they've forgotten everything Paul had ever done for them. Uh, Give you an example of modern-day people trying to pastor or minister in churches. I have this in my file. It's called Minister Wanted. Let me read this to you. Minister for Growing Church, a real challenge for the right man. Opportunity to become better acquainted with people. Applicant must offer experience as a shop worker, office manager, educator, all levels, including college, artist, salesman, diplomat, writer, theologian, politician, Boy Scout leader, children's worker, minor league uh, athlete, psychologist, vocational counselor, psychiatrist, funeral director, wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, circus clown, missionary, social worker, helpful but not essential, experience as a butcher, baker, cowboy, Western Union messenger. Must know all about problems of birth, marriage, and death. Also conversant with latest theories and practices like pediatrics, economics, and nuclear science. Right man will hold firm views on every topic, but is careful not to upset people who disagree. Must be forthright but flexible. Returns criticism and backbiting with Christian love and forgiveness. Should have an outgoing, friendly disposition at all times. Should be a captivating speaker and an intent listener. Will pretend he enjoys hearing women talk. (laughs) Guy has a little bias here. Education must be beyond Ph.D. requirements, but always concealed in homespun modesty and folksy talk. Able to uh, sound learned at times, but most of the times he talks like a good old boy. Familiar with the literature read by average congregation. In, well, I'll leave that alone. Keep on. But must be willing to work long hours, subject to call any time, day or night, Adaptable to sudden interruption. Will spend at least 25 hours preparing sermon, additional 10 hours reading books and magazines. Applicant's wife must be both stunning and plain. (laughs) Smartly attired, but a conservative in appearance. Gracious and able to get along with everyone, even women. 
I thought this guy's really the day he gets shot, but I don't even know who wrote it. Must be willing to work in church kitchen, teach Sunday school. This is the wife. Babysit, run multi-lift machine. That tells you, dated. Wait table, never listen to gossip, never become discouraged. Applicants' children must be exemplary in conduct and character. Well-behaved, yet basically no different from other children. Decently dressed, even though the pastor's underpaid. Opportunity for applicant to live close to work. Furnished home provided, parsonage. Open-door hospitality enforced. Must be ever mindful the house does not belong to him. And that's what happened when you lived in a parsonage. Directly responsible for views and conduct to all church members and visitors. Not confined to direction or support from any one person. Salary not commensurate with experience or need. No overtime pay. All replies kept confidential. Anyone applying will undergo full investigation to determine sanity. Uh, I went to a uh, Mennonite seminary that's part of Pacific University in Fresno, and Raymond Bystrom, they had a bunch of the alumni uh, write this book on pastoral challenges. And one of the uh, interesting things that Raymond writes He talked about the emotional challenges of pastoring. And he talked about the multiple roles that pastors are expected to wear. Get this. Pastors wear many hats. Once upon a time, a typical pastor had five roles to play. Teacher, preacher, worship leader, caregiver, and administrator. Five roles. And he's judged on every one of those. More recently, pastoral work has expanded to 14 roles. Each role includes a cluster of competencies or skills. For example, the role of preacher requires communication skills, exegetical skills, theological reflection skills, composition skills, homiletical skills, cultural awareness skills, to mention but a few. It winds up being about 70 skills that the average pastor is expected to have. Who are we kidding? So how could you ever get a passing grade with the critics? He doesn't know how to counsel. Okay. He's not a good administrator. Right. He's not. Huh. Huh. And pretty soon, pastors, uh, pastoring is a people vocation. And that's hard on the guys that think, I'm going to just teach the word and they'll learn to like me. No, they will throw you up. Get a job at a seminary where you don't have to relate. Just hand out grades. You pastor people, you're always being judged and evaluated. You're going to judge the sermon today. I'm judged at 52 weeks out of the year. Now, you're not being judged right now. You'll say, well, he's talking to me, but I don't know it. You're just guilty. I don't know it. So you all look good. You actually look semi-spiritual. I mean, just looking straight ahead and say, is he on it? Boy, he, he, he was a, wasn't on it today. He didn't study. He didn't pray. Whoa, 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 wait, wait. Don't be judging me. I'm not judging you. Who are we kidding? 
That's why people don't want to get up here and look like an idiot. Because no matter what you cut it, Ted Montoya said one time, I'm not, I'm not going to be subject to get them be, being criticized. I said, well, goodbye. You won't be preaching anymore. You can't escape it. Because right now you're evaluating everything I'm saying. Because here, the, let me tell you the sins of pastors, some of the big ones. Oh, you're thinking of adultery and running off with money. Oh, those, are, those happen later. The big sin is the idolatry of being a people pleaser. Because we're in a people helping vocation. Help people. Counselors are subject to this. Help people. Be all things to all men. Be, be good to this person. Nobody, including God, has gotten along with them. And you're supposed to get them happy. Have you ever tried to get along with somebody that God can't please? Try it. Ask Moses about it. And say, you, you try to do this, and pretty soon you become a slave to the people, please, because it's your idol. You want to be light. It, it, it's what goes with pastoring. Until you become obnoxious or God gives you. One guy told me, he said, to be a good pastor, you need the heart of a mother and the height of a rhinoceros. You're going to be criticized, but you want to remain tender. Paul is dealing with critics, and he's saying, I know who told me to do what I did at Corinth. I followed his will. I gave you the message of the cross. God saved you. Oh, I was weak. Oh, I'm not great. I've never promoted myself. But you were saved as a result of me obeying Christ. And I just want you to know the way I view myself is I'm taking orders from the captain of the church and I'm going to dispense whatever he gives me and that's what he's going to hold me accountable for. Not whether everybody likes me. Do you think that's true? Can you breathe heavy? Just breathe heavy. (laughs) You don't amen. Say it's the truth. It's the truth. I cannot tell you how many pastors are emasculated of any authority because they become idolaters to pleasing the board and all the critics. And they lose all their conviction and all their spunk and all the authority because they're pleasing people that can't be pleased. Let me tell you, hear me now. I don't know how long I'm here, but I didn't come here to please you. I'm not being arrogant, but I'm going to be evaluated by the one who commissioned me. And he told me to preach the word, and he told me to come to Pinot, and I've obeyed him. And when I stand before him, he's going to judge me for whether I followed his orders. That's what he's going to judge me for. Not whether you like me, not whether you stay, whether you go. Many have gone, many have come. And thank God, keep coming. We love you, and I'm not mad, and I don't have indigestion. I'm just telling you that he says, you've got to not be a people pleaser, and it's an occupational hazard. Because who wants to have someone pastor them? They can't stand them. So you're always dealing with this tension. But he sees himself as under Christ following his authority, dispensing his truth. Then he says the responsibility that Christ holds him to and all who serve in his name is you must be found faithful. 
uh, trustworthy. The requirement is faithfulness. You would think it would be a, you must hold a PhD degree. Uh, He must be good looking. He must be this. He must, no, no, no. If Christ wants to entrust you with something, seminary that Rich and I went to in San Francisco, the school motto was 1 Thessalonians 2.4, put in trust with the gospel. Uh, Paul says, I thank God that he put me in trust with the gospel. Let me ask you, what could God trust you with? The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 says God's dispensed to everybody a certain amount of uh, oh, goods to manage. First Peter 4.10 uses the analogy, we have become stewards of the gift that God gave us. Each one of us has received a gift and we receive it as stewards that must answer to the giver of the gift. What did you do with what God gave you? Talent finances, your whole life. What have you done with it? And I just thought about a man must be faithful. Jesus used this. If you have not been faithful with a little, you need more. You need to get, go up a little bit higher. What do you say? No, no, no. If you, if you can't be faithful in a little, let's please don't expand the sphere of influence. Uh, I, my brother-in-law, uh, a week ago Friday, uh, he's been having chemo and sleeping a lot and really declining health and uh, sleep. And, and, and he's from a family that uh, Carolyn's dad and her brother would go to bed at 8 and wake up at 1 or 2 in the morning and start working on their computers. But since this cancer has taken his mind. He, he doesn't remember his passwords, codes, and so he's lost that uh, computer ability, can't drive, and the, the cancer is taking his mental powers. So I said, Richard, let, let's get out. We'll plant some flowers. We'd, I want to get him out of the house and get some sun because he's been in bed so much. So we go out there, and I'm up here working. He's down below. Well, without me knowing it, he has fallen, and, and eventually, because he hasn't shown up to help me, I go check in on him. Uh, he falls, and I went to get him a walker. By the time I got back, he'd gotten up and fell again. Uh, and we went and got our neighbor. He came over. He's too heavy for both of us. He said, I'm afraid something's broken in this guy. Well, he did. He broke his hip right through here. And so he's in Veterans Hospital, uh, just had surgery and put a pin. So we're trying to get him well. But you know what was really nice? While I was doing all this, my wife only dialed nine, one, one. And I would say less than five minutes, firemen were there putting this man on a stretcher and getting him to John Muir Hospital. Five minutes. Now, I've hung out at firehouses because my brother David was there. They play a lot of ping pong. Ask Dave Howard, Dave, because they're not always working, and they cook a lot of great meals, and they play a lot of Jim Rummy. Because they're not always, or, you know, they do their job, but what are you doing 24 hours if the bell's not ring? I don't care how much ping pong they play until I ring 911. You better be there. Don't tell me, no, I've got him 18 to 19. We've got to finish. No, be there. Can we rely on you to show up in our emergency? I don't have an emergency every day. 
And when I have one, I need someone that I know will be there. Do you know what I'm talking about? And in church work and in the ministry of Christ, he said, what could I entrust to you? And I could count on you to be at your post from now on until I change your direction, until I change your orders. I want to tell you, people are as fickle as water. They are not faithful by nature. They wonder, and Christ says, when I get back, I'll ask, what did you do with these talents? And two men, they were doing exactly what he wanted. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to ask you this. Could Christ ultimately say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, without lying? Because I don't believe he's going to say it to you just because you're a saint. You go to heaven by grace. You get his commendation because you did what he said. When we all receive praise in this verse, it's all that followed through the requirement of being faithful at whatever God's called you to do. And I'm amazed how many saints haven't been called to do anything. They think they're going to be, get a reward for showing up at church. And this is supposed to be your weekly feast. How have we turned it into drudgery? How is it we've turned the Lord's day, the Lord's day? Now, let's talk about your day and the Lord's day. If it's your day, how many hours does it have? What? What? Okay. Today is whose day? Now, now tell me the truth. Now, come on. I want you to lie to yourself. Don't lie to me because I know there's going to be a lot of lying right now. There's going to be a lot of lying. How much of this day will God get out of you? Say, oh, man, God broke into my morning coffee and newspaper time. Oh, you need that. You've read it for six days and you're depressed. Why one more newscast? I mean, we've canceled a bunch of flights because poor Iceland belched. You know, we, hey, so what? So what? You're going to be evaluated, every one of you, because God has no saved children that he has not committed something to you to do. And he's going to say, when I return, I'm not going to ask you what your wife said, what all the people said. I'm going to ask you, did you do what I entrusted you to do? Or have you abandoned your post of duty? Why do we beg for workers? We shouldn't beg for workers in this church. We ought to have people volunteering all over the place to do this. And we have many, thank God. Or we couldn't do what we do. But Paul says, Corinthians, God's not impressed with all the things you're impressed with. He wants a man who will be faithful to do what Christ tells him. Now, he takes some, there's three courts that you appeal to and that you wind up having to appear in. And the first court is the court of human opinion. And look what he says. Uh, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Be honest, it sounds arrogant. But what is he saying? Uh, You guys didn't tell me what to do. I didn't come to Corinth on your agenda. 
I came leaving the city of Athens in Acts 17. I got beat up uh, in Acts, well, I was thrown in jail in Acts 16. And by the way, I got stoned at Lystria. I was a beat up, bleeding jailbird by the time I got to Corinth. Doing the will of God, obeying God. And he's going to go on and tell them, you guys are rich, but I've been bleeding. You guys got everything. But I'm over here suffering poverty because I would do anything to please my master. Who are you pleasing? He's going to get strong. It's going to get stronger. By the time you read 2 Corinthians, there's fire coming off the page because he's defending his office. None of you have ever been under that because you've never taken that much responsibility. Not in the church. You don't know what I'm talking about. And so he says, you judge me. Help yourself. I don't care what you wind up rating me at. I ultimately will answer to the Lord. And then he says, I judge myself. Uh, I don't even trust it. I do not even judge myself. Forgive me. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Uh, Even if I evaluate myself, uh, whatever I rate myself is not good. You know, the great blessing uh, Rich Rollins has been to me, one of the greatest blessings he's been to me is when he came to me, I was a beat-up, resigning pastor. I was trying to leave this church. I I was moving to the valley, and I was connecting with another preacher friend, and I was getting out of the ministry here. I I, I couldn't go any further. I was too beat-up. And uh, I had critics all over the place. Critics, this, you didn't do this right. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. And, and, of course, when you're in a storm, you elevate the voice of your critics. And so I was beat up. And when he got here, part of Richie's uh, temperament is that he's a cheerleader. He's optimistic but by nature, by personality. I happen not to be. I'm melancholy. I consider myself a realist. He's the optimist. But in my realism, uh, as he has counseled me and choked me before, uh, he, has, uh, he has a chokehold he uses in counseling, really works. And uh, is that he said, you tend to always see the cup half empty. I tend to see it half full. How many of you see it half empty? There's three of them, okay. Th- thanks, Greg, for that confession. How many see it half full? You're always up. Oh, you're sickening. Get out of here. I'm always thinking, you know, my life motto is, I thought it would get better, and sure enough, it didn't. (laughs) You you know. But but he's been there encouraging, strengthening me. I don't think flattering, but affirming. Affirming me over and over. Affirming this church. One of his favorite lines is, our best days are ahead of us. And I'm thinking, you call these best days? It's been kind of rough the last week. Oh, get over it, Howard. You ought to see the churches I've been in. And I just want to choke him in love. Because he's right. She's right. Uh, You know what? Your self-evaluation is hardly worth spit. Because... uh, And I don't ever let him get with my wife because they both agree. See, 
I've never preached a good sermon to me. I, I, I never buy my CDs. I never hear them. I listen to five minutes and I'm depressed. And I'm amazed you come. Wow, I said, man, that's terrible. Is that the best you can do? When are you going to learn? No wonder an hour sermon, Chuck, reduces it to 20 minutes. It's the only substance. You know, the rest, we got to get rid of the fluff hour. And so I just say, no, because I grew up reading men in the 1700s. I read these guys that got up every morning at four, and, and I don't get spiritual until about seven. And that's with two cups of coffee. Do you know what I mean? But I'd read about these guys. They got up at four. I used to get up early. I I did this. I prayed at a little church in San Pablo. And I'd keep trying to get, I'd make it good at seven. So I'm going to move it back. And eventually, and I'm still in junior high. And I'd get down there. And they had a a quilting class. These women came in early in the morning. Some mornings they'd come up, wake me up at the altar. I'd fall asleep. Because I was going to be godly. If godly, seven was too easy. I'm going six. I'm going seven, and then you get two hours sleep before you go to school on the altar. I felt like I gave him all in my sleep. No, no, what's wrong with praying at seven? Well, that's not the spiritual hour. You know, John Owens did it at five. Luther got up at four, and he stayed awake. Because I could never get a passing grade on my own standard about what I ought to be doing. It's a slave. It's a treadmill. My wife invented vacations in her mind. But she married a guy that would, you, when we first got married, we, we got a trailer one year. I, I packed 20 books. We loaded it with food. And we were up at a lake for two days. I said, we've got to go, man. The kingdom of God is on fire. I've got to go out and help. she got to help. We're on vacation. I feel souls are calling. I feel... So I tore up everything. Poor girl. It's a wonder she lives with me. I bless her heart. Pray for my wife. She deserves. I mean, you, you never met Mother Teresa till you may meet her. I mean, well, honey, we're, we're taking a vacation. No, no. Souls are calling. People, huh, huh. You mean the work of God won't go on if you're not there? That's why God gave a Sabbath. I think Sabbath and forces us to go to sleep to show us the universe still runs when you're not in charge. And that's where people are always telling me, I take faster, slow down. You don't have to do more. Just keep doing the things God's called you to do. But I need to be there. I need. <laughs> have a nervous breakdown for Jesus. Jesus is a lot easier on us than we are ourselves, some of us. He doesn't keep you guilty. It's you. And he says, hey, even if I give myself a passing grade, that's not what's going to get it done. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. You see, when you judge a man, you don't know his hidden life. You don't know the circumstances. I've seen people before asleep during my sermon. And, and one time, I, I wanted to get under this guy sleeping. This wife later told me, said, he's on medication. 
You know, he's nearly 100 years old, and I'm wanting him to stay awake. You don't know the circumstances. Some of you sleep at 21, and you're not on anything. You know, hey, you don't know the circumstances. You don't know the why. You don't know. I think of them, Paul, we don't like you. You don't know that I just got out of jail. You don't know I'm still healing from Lystra. You don't know what it's cost me to get to you with the gospel. And now you want to criticize? Oh, us impudent, arrogant people that spend our time judging other people. And we don't know their motives. We don't know their circumstances. We don't know the handicaps they've overcome. We just don't know anything. And we've already passed judgment. And he's going to tell them later to judge people. But it's to judge their behavior and their behavior that goes against the word of God. You can know that. But you can't judge, oh, I got you figured out. No, you don't. You don't even have you figured out. Well, I'm glad this is not Friendship Sunday. That's why I have none. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Let me tell you about this word motives. They got a hush. I want to have a Q&A. If that, we did that in the second service the last time, and it was helpful. You may not have any questions, but if we do, uh, I want to I'll close right here. Um, the word there for motives is from a Greek word for will. Strong word for will. And this is what I think motive is. Why do you choose the things you choose? Why do you say yes to this? And why do you say no to that? And the, the why behind the choice is your motives. Uh, oh, you know, um, we, we kid about... Uh, uh, young people. Uh, Jimmy, clean your room. Mom, I'm exhausted. Ring, ring, ring. Will you play ball? I'll be right there. What changed? I want to play ball. I don't want to clean the room. You know, it's Sunday night services. We had low attendance last week. And, and it bugs me. It really does because I remember when we met every Sunday night. Every Sunday night. And had good attendance. But but see, people have come to choice, and they say, I have a reason for staying home. What is that? It's the Lord's day. Now, anything I ask you to do on the Lord's day, the Lord would be first, right? Forgive them. They know not what they're saying. <laughs> so when I show up, I, I have to say, I don't care what you call me. I don't care. It bugs me when doing the will of God makes you tired. It, I, I could care less. All the garbage that our weeks are consumed dealing with. And you get so few chance to meet with the church gathered. You name how many times you can meet in a normal week. And around his word, around an outstanding servant that spoke, and around, yeah, it wasn't me. I had a guest. I covered myself on that. I knew you'd go after me. This is a critical audience. No question and answer today. It's too critical. And the Lord's Supper that I, is not a ritual to me, it shouts, it, it proclaims a message every time we take. And these tired, whiny saints. You just don't want to be here. 
I was at a book signing recently, and uh, it was in San Francisco. And so people were there, and this man signing his books and kind of a legend. Uh, and so I was there, and then all of a sudden it's his turn to speak. And just before he got ready to speak and to thank everybody, someone said, well, so-and-so would have been here, and this is... And he just, he just spoke. He said, everybody's here that wanted to be here. Everybody's here that wanted to be. I don't want to hear why they couldn't be. They were here because they wanted to be. And when you stand before the Lord Jesus, he's going to judge everything about you that we don't know. What makes you make the choices you make, right? Yes, no. He's going to say, my eyes are going to pierce you. I know things about you, Paul, the Corinthians don't know. I know things about you, Howard. Do you preach for money? Do you preach for uh, glory? Or do you preach for God? I know. I know, Howard. I know what motivates you. When you stand before me, I'll stand before you with nail-scarred hands. You know why I went to the cross. Why are you doing what you do. And he applies this to him and Apollos. And he says, there's nothing we have that God didn't give us. And all we're accountable for is to use what God put in us for his glory until we meet him. And he's going to put the blowtorch to our life. And everything that was worthless in motive and choice will be consumed and be ashes. You won't have any rewards for watching TV You won't have any rewards for excuses. You'll only be rewarded and hear him say, I praise you for what you were faithful to do what I told you to do. Your praise will come from God. Men may never praise that missionary that's been in a hard place, never got paid, never had any accolades, was seen as an ordinary, plain kind of person, when he stands in front of Christ, whether that was a hard field or that little church out in Dunksville, that would never be impressive. You would never interview that pastor. He's going to say, I know where you labored. I know how hard it was. And you did what I told you in Morocco, in a Muslim country. You did what I told you in hard places. Guess what? You never got a raise, maybe. You never got written up and no human because you weren't that impressive on the human court side. But I know, I know what you were in secret. I know your kids didn't have the shoes they needed. They couldn't have orthodontics because you didn't have the money and you barely made your health care. I know, I know. And what men have failed to give, you wait until you hear Jesus say to a faithful servant, well done, good, and faithful servant. I ask you, will he say that about you once we bury you and you go into his presence? Or will it be, why didn't you do what I told you to do? Our Father is showing up in the court of Jesus. That is our greatest challenge. 
We can fool people some of the time, and we can fool ourselves all the time. But we can never fool you. You know us. You search us. And we're living before this audience of one, waiting for the day. You do the evaluating, and you do the rewarding. Let that be the ambition of our life, to have your approval when it's all over. In Jesus' name, amen.